Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 this morning. We just uh, sang a verse that struck me, that every inch of the universe belongs to you, O Christ. For through you and for you, it was made. That this one would come to take on a human nature is absolutely mind-boggling, and we get to look into that today, his incarnation. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. This is the Word of God. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Let's pray. our Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have a historical record of the birth of Christ. We thank you, Lord, that this morning we can be focusing our attention on one of the greatest mysteries that has ever taken place, the incarnation. I just pray that as we open your word, that Lord, you would would meet us, that your spirit would be mightily at work through the preaching of your word. Lord, I know that there's no word that could ever come out of my mouth that ever could change a heart in this world. But Lord, you, accompanying your word, can do mighty things. You can bring life to the dead. (laughs) You can take someone who is wayward and snatch them back. You You can bring comfort to those who are in anxiety or in fear. And so today, Lord... I pray that by your grace, you would bless the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the Christmas story, familiar. The visitation of the angel Gabriel. The Christ child conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The visit of Mary to her relative Elizabeth. The journey to Bethlehem, the no vacancy sign at the end, the birth of Christ, the manger, the shepherds, the wise men, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. All of these familiar elements to us. If you've spent any time in uh, the world, especially in the church in America, you have heard this story over and over again. Familiar elements historical facts that come to us straight from the Scriptures. But one of the 
traps that we can easily fall into is that we read or we listen to this historical account just like we would any other history lesson. The danger is that we would miss God, that we would miss what He's doing, that we would miss the awe and the wonder that the events surrounding the birth of Christ are meant to arouse in us. And so this morning, I want to invite you to take a fresh look at Luke's account of the Christmas story with me, to discover and to rediscover and to be reminded that behind the familiar details of this, of this story is a glorious God who is sovereignly unfolding His plan of redemption. Now, I've titled this sermon this morning, A Pregnant Christmas Story. Kind of a play on words. Yes, Mary is pregnant, but more so, there are certain details of this story that are pregnant with meaning and significance that are worthy of our attention and especially worthy of our meditations over the next several days and certainly today. But before we jump into Luke chapter 2, I want us to, to think about a little bit of context here. In order for us to understand the Christmas story, we actually have to, to understand the biblical story. So I want to try to do that a little bit this morning at the beginning. Scriptures tell us that our first parents, Adam and Eve, they were created in the image of God with knowledge and righteousness and holiness and they were placed in the Garden of Eden where they lived in unhindered fellowship with the living God. It was a relationship that humanity was designed to find lasting satisfaction in. But that relationship was severed when Adam sinned against God by eating the forbidden fruit. The moral purity that was required for uh, humanity to live in a never-ending loving fellowship with a holy God was polluted and the promised curse came upon Adam, the curse of death and all who would come after him. As the representative head of humanity, Adam's sin plunged us into misery. The guilt, the state of guilt before God came to us. He passed down a corrupted nature to us where our natures from, from, from conception and, and certainly birth are corrupted with sin, bent towards it, and of course the wages of that sin, which is death. Consequently, an unhindered, never-ending, loving relationship with God was no longer possible. The question that looms in the background of Genesis 3 is, is, is there any hope? Is there any hope of the guilt being pardoned? Is there any hope of the corrupted nature being reversed? Is there any hope of the, of the death sentence being lifted? Is there any hope to be restored in a relationship with God? And in the midst of those curses that God pronounces in Genesis 3, God gives us an affirmative, yes, there is hope. But there is hope in one. There is hope in one who will come from the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent, who will render all of the misery that his temptation caused null and void. And so the rest of the Old Testament is, is simply how God is, is unfolding His plan of bringing the Savior into the world. And so after the fall, it doesn't take long for us to see what this corrupted human nature, what it actually does. We see that Cain murders his brother Abel, 
And then after that, we see humanity spiraling down further and further in all kinds of wickedness and evil in the sight of God to the point where God wipes out all of humanity with a flood, except He keeps a remnant alive, Noah and his family, in whom this Savior would come. A couple of years, some years later, God appears to a descendant of Noah's by the name of Abraham and enters into a covenant with Abraham and promises him that there is going to come one from his seed who is going to, in whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. That covenant is renewed with Abraham's son Isaac and then Isaac's son Jacob, that the Savior would come from Israel. But not just that he would come from Israel, that he would come from the tribe of Judah, as Sam mentioned a little bit earlier. But not that just he would come from the tribe of Judah, that he would come through the line of David. And he would be a king who occupied David's throne forever. Well, then God raised up prophets when he continued to unfold this plan about this Savior who would come, revealing details about him hundreds of years before he would arrive. I want to share some of those prophecies with you this morning. That he would be born of a virgin called Emmanuel, born in Bethlehem. People would come to adore him. He would be called out of Egypt. He would be preceded by a forerunner. He would be entering into his public ministry in Galilee, that he would, li would live in poverty and meekness, that he would be preaching in parables. He would be working miracles. He would be rejected by his own Jewish brethren, that the Jews and the Gentiles would combine together against him, that he would be betrayed by a friend, that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, that his disciples would forsake him, that he would die with intense suffering, that he would be silent under that suffering, that he would be struck on the cheek, that his visage would be marred, that he would be spit upon and scourged, that he would be pierced long before crucifixion would be invented. He would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He would be mocked. Gall and vinegar would be offered to him. His garments would be parted. Lots would be cast for his clothing. He would die, but not a bone in his body would be broken. He would be buried with the rich. His flesh would not see corruption. He would be raised from the dead. He would ascend back to the right hand of the Father. And he would be enthroned forever. And his kingdom would know no bounds. And then silence for 400 years until the angel Gabriel appears to a priest by the name of Zechariah. And he reveals to Zechariah that he's going to have a son. And this son is going to be the promised forerunner to the Messiah, to the Savior King, who will announce the arrival of his kingdom. And then that angel Gabriel appears to a little teenage girl by the name of Mary. And he reveals to Mary that, that she is going to conceive in her womb this promised Savior King. But he's going to be conceived not by her soon-to-be husband Joseph, but by the Holy Spirit. The fulfillment of the prophecies had begun. And this is where we pick up the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2. The main thing I want you to carry away with you today is this. Look behind the details of the Christmas story and behold your God unfolding His plan of salvation and let that drive you to joy-filled worship. First thing I want you to see in verses 1 through 3 today is behold the wisdom of your God in the timing of Christ's birth. In those days, 
That's the days after John the Baptist's birth. In those days, a decree, which is an official order, went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world, that means actually all the Roman Empire, that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be, went to be registered, each to his own town. Now Luke, is, of course, is a flawless historian under the, Holy, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He reveals uh, the setting on the world scene that surrounded the birth of Jesus. He says that Caesar Augustus was in power. That means he was enthroned as the ruler over the Roman Empire. And he issued a decree that all the citizens in the Roman Empire should be registered. And that registration, by the way, was for purpose, purposes of taxation. This was the first registration, he says, not the second one, which we know occurred in AD 6, when Quirinius was governor. Now, now looking at that, there's, there's nothing dramatic here. Nothing that, that seems to just stand out, but yet there are two words in these verses that are pregnant with significance that we can easily miss. And those words are Caesar Augustus. I want to tell you a little bit about Caesar Augustus this morning. He reigned over the Roman Empire from 27 BC until his death in AD 14. So that would be uh, from the birth of Christ. He was reigning all the way well into Christ's uh, teenage years. The word Caesar means emperor. And the word Augustus is actually not his name. That's a name that was conferred upon him by the Roman Senate, which means exalted one. So emperor, exalted one. He was born by the name Gaius Octavius. He had a famous great uncle, you may know, by the name of Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar actually adopted Gaius Octavius to be his son and his primary heir. Well, tragically, about one to two years after that adoption, uh, Julius Caesar was murdered. And his kingdom was divided between three men, Gaius Octavius, Mark Antony, and a man by the name of Marcus Lepidus. Over time, there was conflict between these three rulers and Marcus Lepidus ended up being, culminated in Marcus Lepidus being exiled and Gaius uh, Octavius defeating um, uh, Mark Antony at the Battle of Actium in 31 BC, leaving the Roman Republic at the time in the hands of what would turn out to be a very capable ruler who would become Caesar Augustus. He was an astute leader an incredible administrator of Rome. We can glean a little bit, some understanding of what, what a lot of at least higher nobility people thought about him in an inscription that was found called the Preen Calendar Inscription. It's actually dated back to 9 BC. So that would be, that would be just a few years before the birth of Christ. And what the Preen Calendar Inscription is, it's a, it's a decree to start a new calendar system based on the year of Caesar Augustus's birth. And so I want to just read this to you, and I want you to just listen to the irony about this. Here's what it says. Since providence, which probably is referring to a Roman goddess, since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue, that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things, in other words, bring peace. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations, 
surpassing all previous benefactors. That's all who came before him. And not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the euangelion, gospel, good news for the world that came by reason of him which Asia resolved in Smyrna. Let me just give you the translation of this. (laughs) The goddess providence has brought us the gospel through the birth of the god Caesar Augustus. He is our Savior. He is our peace. There is none who will surpass, surpass him, has surpassed Him before Him. There will be none that surpass Him behind Him. Boy, our God's timing is ironic, isn't it? That just three to five years later, the providence of the one true living God would send His Son, truly God, to be born as a baby, truly man, the God-man. It is He who would be the true Savior of people from all over the world. It is He who would bring true and lasting peace as the Prince of Peace. It is He who would surpass all who would become before Him and all who ever come after Him. It is He who is the Gospel, the Good News. And it is He who the calendar system just so happens to be revolving around. B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, meaning the year of our Lord, the year of our Lord's birth. We can just imagine God (laughs) laughing in the heavens, as Psalm 2 says, as He looks down on such an inscription just a few years before the birth of Christ. But now I want you to actually see the wisdom of God in bringing the Savior into the world when Caesar Augustus was reigning. As I mentioned, He was an astute leader, an incredible administrator of Rome. And some of his accomplishments that you may not know is this. He's actually credited with founding the Roman Empire. He's credited with establishing something that's known as the Pax Romana, which is the Roman peace. Uh, Basically, this is something that is uh, known as, uh, well, before Caesar Augustus was in power, there were civil wars going on all over what would become the Roman Empire. But under his reign, he brought relative peace throughout the empire. And that peace would, by the way, continue for two centuries, roughly 200 years. He increased Rome's net revenue through tax reforms. You thought only American politicians cared about taxes. And this with, here's the thing, though. With this tax revenue, he expanded trade and trade routes In other words, he developed and improved and expanded the network of roads throughout the Roman Empire. Galatians 4 tells us this, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In the fullness of time. You know what that means? That means in the exact time that God, who is sovereign over history, had foreordained His Son to arrive, Caesar Augustus, with all of His accomplishments, was in power. A perfect time. It was an empire that was vast, which means huge, and it was at peace and interconnected with roads that made travel faster and easier than it ever had been before. It was an opportune time in history for a particular message to spread quickly 
from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. I want to show you this in visual form. This is a video that Jeff has shown before, but this video starts out with Caesar Augustus's uh, Roman Empire, what it was in 0 AD. And I want you to see the spread of the gospel from 0 AD all the way to 2016 is, I think, what it goes through. That's the Roman Empire under Caesar Augustus at the beginning was. What a wise God we have. Daniel says of God, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. Why? (laughs) For his own purposes and glory. Caesar Augustus, a tool in the hand of God to prepare a world where the gospel would unleash and be spread like wildfire. Behold the wisdom of your God in bringing the Savior into the world during the reign of Caesar Augustus. Next, I want you to behold the sovereignty of your God over the affairs of man to fulfill His word about the Savior in verses 4 through 6. See, in Luke's account of the Christmas story, there's a silent dilemma that exists between chapter 1 and chapter 2. After Mary returns from visiting her relative Elizabeth, she returns back to Nazareth and something begins to happen. Her belly begins to grow and grow and grow until she's just a matter of weeks from giving birth. Little did she know that there was a silent dilemma growing at the same time. It was a dilemma so big that the faithfulness of God and the infallibility of the Old Testament Scriptures was at stake. In fact, it was a dilemma so big that the authenticity of whether or not the child in her, in her womb was actually the Savior that had been promised was hanging in the balance. You see, 700 years prior, God had revealed through the prophet Micah exactly where the Savior would be born. Micah 5.2 says this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. In other words, his origin predates his coming. This is no mere human. The Savior, God says, must be born in Bethlehem. And we know that this is exactly what the Jews of the day thought about Micah 5.2, that this was a, a prophecy of where the Messiah would be born, where this Savior King would be born. If you may remember when... The wise men go searching for the Christ child. They go to Jerusalem and they go to Herod and they're like, where's the Christ child? And he calls in the scribes and the priest and he asks them, where's the Christ supposed to be born? And they say, Bethlehem. And then they, they, they quote Micah 5.2. But the problem is, is Mary and Joseph, just a few weeks before the birth of Christ, they weren't in Bethlehem. They were 90 miles away in Nazareth. As far as we know, We don't know, but as far as we know, there was no plans for a baby moon to Bethlehem. You guys know what that is? People take trips before they have babies now, kind of like a honeymoon. There's no plans for that as far as we know. More than likely, Mary was doing what any other mother would do. She was preparing to have her baby in Nazareth. Nesting, I think is what they call it. Getting her humble home ready for her newborn. Stacking the shelves with cloth diapers. She opted for those. Making her birth plans, perhaps asking her mother to be by her side during labor, coaching her and encouraging her. Mary was a a young teenager. 
but a long and grueling trip to Bethlehem in the last uncomfortable weeks of her pregnancy, mothers, it's probably the last thing that she had on her mind. And so the dilemma was building and building and building. And and frankly, everything that we believe about this book was at stake. (laughs) So what would happen? Well, because Mary and Joseph were likely planning on having their baby in Nazareth, God's hands were just tied This would just have to be one of those times that His Word was not fulfilled. (laughs) Aren't you glad that the fulfillment of God's plans and promises are not dependent upon people? Not Mary, not Joseph, not you, and not me. The Lord said of Himself in Isaiah, contrasting Himself with the false gods of Babylon, He said, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. See, the Lord didn't need Mary and Joseph to know what the prophecy of Micah 5.2 was. He didn't need them to, to make plans to have the baby in Bethlehem so that his word could be fulfilled. In fact, he ordained the dilemma that the time was winding down while Mary and Joseph were still in Nazareth so that she could show forth the glory of His sovereignty over the affairs of man to fulfill His word, to give us yet another assurance that this indeed was the Savior that He had promised. And so, as Mary was inching closer and closer to labor and delivery, the Lord was sovereignly working in the heart of the most powerful man that existed at the time, Caesar Augustus. Proverbs 21.1 tells us this, that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord and he turns it wherever he will. We get to see an outworking of that reality in Luke chapter 2. As Caesar Augustus issues a decree that all the world should be registered, including the inhabitants of Nazareth, including Mary and Joseph, at just the right time in history for the Savior to be born in Bethlehem. And in verse 3, or verse 4, we read, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. Remember, the Savior would come from the line of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Bethlehem a location that is pregnant with meaning and significance in this Christmas story that should cause us to marvel that God is the God who not only foresees the future, but He is the God who actually has foreordained the future so that by His power, He accomplishes His Word every single time. Behold the sovereignty of your God to fulfill His Word about the Savior's birth. Lastly, I want you to see in verse 7, Behold the humiliation of your God in the incarnation. Verse 7, And she gave birth to her firstborn son. By the way, later she would have other sons. And wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Considering the, the magnanimous importance of this child, we should be struck at the simplicity of the account of his birth. No trumpets blaring, no angels singing, at least not here. 
No uh, residual glow emanating from him. Luke simply says he was born. He probably looked like any other baby, cried like any other baby, messed his diaper like any other baby. But, but hidden there behind that 7-pound, 20-inch body or whatever it was, was the eternal Son of God. The Word had become flesh to dwell among us. That's an incomprehensible mystery to our finite minds. That the one whose infinite power had flung the stars and the planets into the heavens and who created all things that exist was there. And he could barely lift his head and control his limbs as a baby. That the one who knows all things, omniscience, even to the point of knowing every single hair on your head and my head and everyone's head throughout history had to learn his Aleph Bet Gimels. That's the Hebrew alphabet, ABCs. That the one who is self-dependent, self-sufficient, self-existent needed his mother's milk to live and to grow. This is a glorious mystery of the incarnation. Emmanuel, God with us. Paul speaks about the incarnation in Philippians chapter 2. I want to share that with you this morning. He says this, starting in verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, by the way, form is not, in this instance, is not referring to the outer shell of something. It's referring to the inner nature of something. The, even though he was in the form of God, he was God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, even though he was equal to God, second person of the Trinity, equal in his divine nature, sharing the divine nature, even though that was true, he didn't use his rights as, and privileges as God to continue to exist as he always had, that is, without a human nature. But he says he emptied himself. How did he do that? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You see, the incarnation is an, is an emptying. It is a subtraction but it's not an emptying and a subtraction of His divine nature. It's not an emptying and a subtraction of His divine attributes. Rather, it is a, isn't an emptying or a subtraction by addition. That's funny math. A human nature was added to His divine nature. This is how Christ emptied Himself. This is where the humiliation of Christ begins. The very fact that He is conceived and born, the eternal Son of God is conceived and born as a human. Has anyone that you've ever known traveled such a distance from such heights to such depths? But He goes even further. See, the humble circumstances of His birth actually bears witness to another aspect of His humiliation. He didn't just come down from heaven. He came all the way down. Luke says that He was wrapped in swaddling cloths, and laid in a manger. Now, you've probably heard that so many times that it's lost its shock value, that he would actually be wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger. He deserved to be wrapped in the luscious royal garments that this earth had to offer, but instead he was wrapped with strips of crude cloth. He deserved to be born in a palace and laid in the most beautiful glorious bassinet fit for a king. But instead, he was born in what was likely a holding shelter for animals. 
and laid in a saliva-encrusted feeding trough, surrounded by the stench of livestock. In many ways, this is a picture of His humiliation. Right, The holy, pure Son of God coming down into a world filled with the repulsive stench of sin and sinners. See, one of the greatest misunderstandings of our self-esteem generation is that we misunderstand at just how repulsive sin is to a holy God. The reason it's not all that repulsive to us, by the way, is because sin is in us and around us, and we live in a fallen world where sin is everywhere. I know this is not the greatest illustration, but hopefully you, it'll, it'll get us there, closer to there. Think about it this way. Put a bunch of serial killers in the same room, and they're probably not that repulsed by each other. Why? Because they're all kind of alike. They all have similar natures. But introduce into that same room the mothers of the victims that they killed, and all of a sudden the dynamic completely changes, doesn't it? They are repulsed by the nature of those killers because they've been injured by their crimes. Well, see, our nature as sinners is infinitely more repulsive than that to a holy God. And if we don't grasp that one truth, we will miss one of the most important parts of His incarnation, just how amazing it was. So you want to know how repulsive sin is to God? I want to point you in two places. Pick up your Bible first and read what the Bible has to say about hell. A place of eternal torment reserved for people like Hitler that are really bad, right? No, reserved for sinners like you and like me. A place where there is no relief, no happiness, no joy, where the never-ending occupation of its inhabitants is weeping and gnashing of teeth in agony. That's how repulsive sin is to God. I didn't need that. The second place I would point you is to the cross. The night before His crucifixion, we get to see a side of Jesus that we have not seen before in all the Gospels. In the Garden of Gethsemane, He being keenly aware of the wrath of God for the sins of His people that is about to come crashing down on Him, crushing Him, He says this, he says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. As he faced the wrath of God, he's saying, I, I, I see it and I am so full of sorrow that I'm almost dead. He fell on his face, scriptures tell us, and he cried out, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Let it pass from me. That, of course, is the cup of God's wrath stored up for the sins of His people. Well, as we know, the next day, Jesus is pinned to the cross, naked, bearing the sins of His people. And about noon, the Scriptures tell us that darkness comes over the land. The curse of God comes over the land. And the Niagara Falls of God's wrath comes crashing down on His Son in judgment. Unthinkable horrors that you and I have no ability to imagine because we've never been to hell. <laughs> the wrath of God crushing down on His Son. There's some people who say that the cross shows how much I'm worth. No. The cross shows how repulsive sin is to God. 
It shows how much it cost. That the eternal Son of God had to take on a human nature to pay a debt that His people would be paying forever in hell. See, this is what makes the incarnation so filled with wonder. That from the moment of His incarnation into the moment of His ascension, that Jesus would be surrounded by a people whose sinful nature was naturally repulsive to His holy nature. Hell repulsive. Cross repulsive. Yet, He was meek. And He was gentle. And He was gracious. And He came and He healed and He came and He preached and He came and He was patient. Even stooping down to the place of washing His disciples' feet like the lowest servant. See, no one has ever traveled such a distance from such heights to such depths that Jesus did in His humiliation, but He went even further. Paul continues in Philippians 2, Philippians 2, by revealing the purpose of His incarnation in verse 8. He says, "...in being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." See, the purpose of the incarnation was not so that, that, that God could come and just hang out with humans and feel like it was what it was like. The purpose of the incarnation was to provide salvation for His people through His life, death, and resurrection. Paul says that, that He was obedient to the point of death, even the most humiliating death that there was, death on a cross. You want to see humiliation? Look at the cross. The eternal Son of God in the flesh, the creator, sustainer, provider of the universe, strung on a cross, naked, mocked, battered, betrayed, pierced, experiencing excruciating physical pain, suffocation due to a fixation because of the cross, but nothing in compared to the spiritual pain and agony he was under as he suffered under the wrath of God. And then... Flatline, dead, humiliation. Why? Why would He do such a thing? See, this is the wonder of the incarnation, its purpose. The eternal Son of God robed in frail humanity to ransom His people by His own death in order to what? To bring us back to God when Jesus breathed His last breath, Matthew tells us that the veil which separated the rest of the world from the Holy of Holies, which is where the special place, where, where special presence of God dwelt, was ripped into, torn into from top to bottom. It's as if God from heaven ripped this veil, declaring that now because of what His Son has accomplished for His people, the sacrifice that He had made, that there is now access to Him through His Son. And then the Scriptures tell us that on the third day, He rose from the dead. An undeniable sign that He is indeed the Savior that has been promised from Genesis 3 all the way through Malachi. Undeniable proof that the salvation that He offers is real. How can we be so certain? Only the Holy Spirit can make you certain, Right? But he does it through his word. And one of the places that he's done it for many people is Isaiah 53. 
See, God foretold exactly what would take place to the Savior in His crucifixion and His death for the sins of His people and His resurrection. Here's what He says. 700 years before Christ ever was born. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity. That's the sin of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. When His soul makes an offering for guilt, that He makes an offering of Himself for guilty sinners. That's His death. He shall see His offspring. He shall prolong His days. That's the resurrection. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And so as we move into a time of application today, the first thing I want to ask you is, are you trusting in this Savior? This Savior in whom plenty of evidence has been provided by God that this is indeed the one promised from Genesis 3. This is the only one who can forgive your sins through His, his work on the cross. This is the only one who can pardon your guilt. This is the only one who can lift your death sentence. This is the only one who can reverse that corrupt nature that's in you. This is the only one who can give you what you need most before God, the gift of righteousness. See, there's a day that God has promised that is coming. It's called the day of judgment. And on that day, He tells us that that the sheep, that is those who have trusted in Jesus, are going to be separated from the goats, that is those who have refused Jesus. And on that day, the goats are going to be judged according to their deeds, according to what they've done. And they're going to be led astray into eternal punishment in hell forever for their sins. But the sheep on that day, having already been justified by the work of Christ, they are going to be led into eternal life to live in the presence of God forever and ever. That relationship that had been severed in the Garden of Eden was now finding the full consummation and fulfillment of what He promised. It would be restored. This relationship of man living with God would be restored. So let me just ask you this morning, are you a sheep or are you a goat? Jesus said, my sheep, listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Have you heard the voice of Jesus? Here's what He says in Mark chapter 1. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. Have you done that? Have you repented? Repentance is simply where you feel the weight of your sin and then you see the mercy of God in Christ. And with grief over your sin, you turn from it to God with the intention and the purpose to follow Him for the rest of the days of your life. That is, means you're willing to, intending to submit to His Word for the rest of the days of your life. Have you repented of your sins? Or are you still comfortable in them? Are you still comfortable disobeying God? If, if that is true of you, then that's not evidence that you've received the gift of repentance, which is something that God gives to us. Secondly, have you believed or trusted in the gospel? This simply means that that you've relinquished trying to save yourself by your own goodness 
or your own religious activities or trusting in some, something or someone else. You've relinquished all of that and now you, are, you have received Christ and you are resting in Him alone for your salvation and nothing else. Is that true of you? Are you a sheep or are you a goat? Listen, if you have not done that this morning, I want to love you enough to tell you that you are in grave, grave danger because the wrath of God abides on you because you're still in your sins. And that's a dangerous place to be because at any moment, your life could could be taken away from you. God holds it in His hand. Christ could come back today. You could die on your way home from church today. It could be anything. But yet right now, right in this moment, I know this to be true, that the door of mercy is open. You have the opportunity to repent and to trust in Christ. And I urge you to do that before it's too late and receive the best gift that has ever been given, which, yes, is Christ It is Christ and it is the righteousness that He will robe you with as if you had never sinned before and He will restore the relationship with you and God. That is where your human heart is designed to find satisfaction forevermore in Him. Secondly, if you have trusted in Christ today, just one application for you. It is so easy to understand, but yet it is hard to apply. I want to encourage you to carve out time to meditate on God's Word. Carve out time to meditate, and specifically this week, on the Christmas story. See, sadly, meditation has become a lost spiritual discipline in our day and time. There's so many things that that are out there to distract us. There's so many things vying for our attention. We live busy lives. But let me just ask you one question. Do you want joy? Do you want joy? Then know this, that the road to joy is paved with meditation on God's Word. It's it's the only way there. I promise you that when you go through dark times that will come in your life, that all those years of Facebook and Candy Crush are going to do nothing for you. (laughs) But having the Word of God stored up in your heart is going to be a means of grace to carry you through. There's people that are in this room right now who have gone through some really tough stuff, and I know that some of them at least have had the Word of God stored in their hearts, and it has been a source of comfort and confidence as they walk through some of the deepest, darkest times in their lives so far. And so if meditation is new to you, you're like, okay, yeah, I I do want to to, to take a step to actually do that by God's grace, but where do I start? Let me just encourage you. Start with the three areas that I pointed out today. Start with God's wisdom with the timing of the incarnation during the the, the reign of Caesar Augustus. Start with uh, His sovereignty to fulfill His word and where the Savior would be born, as well as all the other prophecies that He fulfilled. Start with God's humiliation in the incarnation. Look, that's enough food for you to chew on in your thoughts for the rest of the days of your life. And just commit to meditate on those three things this week. That's where you start. So if you want joy this Christmas, meditation is that fuel for that joy. As John Piper has told us, and so famously said, and is so true, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And meditation is the way that we show our satisfaction in Him because we're thinking about those things that we are satisfied in. It's also the thing that actually gets us to the place where we 
grasp a hold of that satisfaction. So as we conclude today, I want to leave you with the words of one of my favorite uh, songs. I'm not sure it's a Christmas song, but it should be. That sums up the work of Christ from His incarnation to His return. And so this is it. Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King. He the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. Come behold the wondrous mystery, He the perfect Son of Man. In His living, in His suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. Christ the great and sure fulfillment of the law, in Him we stand. Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the Lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption, see the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. Come behold the wondrous mystery, slain by death the God of life. But no grave could e'er restrain Him, praise the Lord, He is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance, how unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected, as we will be when He comes. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are so thankful today for Your Word. We're thankful that we can see the greatness of our God in the Christmas story. That we can look behind details that maybe are... They escape us as to how important they are and we can see your, your work, your wisdom, your sovereignty and we can certainly see in your incarnation a humiliation that is very hard for us to comprehend and understand how you would do such a thing and why you would do such a thing for poor sinners like us. But you did and you did it in love, a self-giving, self-sacrificing love and you called us, Lord, as your people to follow you in that type of humiliation. Not that we could ever die on a cross for the sins of anyone, but that we've called to sacrifice ourselves, to take up our crosses and to follow you. Lord, help us to do that. And help us to do it in, in lowness and in humility, following in the footsteps of our Savior. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in this room that walked in as a goat, that by your grace, your sovereign grace, that you would convert them and make them a sheep. And so, Lord, we thank you. I pray for your grace as we leave here that we would be in meditation. We would actually not just nod our heads to the preacher, but actually we would intend to do that this week. And we would make it a habit so that we could have joy in our great God who is sovereign over history and who brings all things that He promises to pass. We have such a sure foundation to, to, to rest upon in Him, in you. We ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.